This is a podcast by the Straits Times. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Aoyong, and I'm your host for this special podcast episode by the Straits Times. Last Saturday, the world commemorated the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks. It remains today perhaps the world's most significant terror attack, and at least in terms of its impact across the world. With me today to talk about that lasting impact of those attacks, I have three guests who have all covered various aspects of the fallout of 9/11 in the region. The first is Melvin Singh, former deputy editor of the New Paper, and he was in Afghanistan as the U.S. campaign Operation Enduring Freedom and the subsequent occupation began. Welcome, Melvin. Thank you for having me. Next, we have ST Indonesia correspondent uh, Wahyudi Suryamatja. He has been covering terrorism in Indonesia for decades, and he has even spoken to some of the leaders of the uh, Al Qaeda-linked outfit Jamaah Islamiyah. Hi, Wahyudi. Hello, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And fine, last but not least, uh, regional correspondent Leslie Lopez. He was the man who broke the story about Singapore's most famous escape terror suspect. In 2009, Leslie got the scoop that Mas Salamat Kastari had been recaptured. Welcome, Leslie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Okay, I'll get right to it. But I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to speak to each of you in turn, but let's start with an obvious question for everyone. It's uh, hard to believe it's been 20 years since 9-11, but do you all still remember where you were, what you were doing when you first learned about the attack? And what did you do? Like, what was your first reaction after you learned? Uh, let's start with Wayudi. Wayudi, where were you? Uh, hi, Jeremy. Thank you. Uh, uh, I was working for a media outlet that focused on financial news uh, that year. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I was in a Jakarta traffic jam coming from post office hours dinner. I got a call from this investment banker uh, describing to me about uh, what happened in New York uh, from uh, a TV he just watched. I was uh, not really sure what he was talking about. Uh, for a second, I thought uh, he was trying to talk me into writing something. Uh, you know, uh, he might have uh, had some short position that he wanted uh, Rupiah to move certain direction. So I wasn't sure what really happened. Only when I reached home, then I knew what really happened. So you thought you were getting a business news tip? <laughs> correct, correct, something yeah. like that. And you were, tip. you were driving uh, or you were in a cab? You were in a taxi or uh, when you got uh, this call? I was, I was driving myself. I got a call from this uh, long time an investment banker who just uh, actually joined the government, uh, that person. Uh, uh. That's it. Uh, yeah, I had no idea whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, at that time, I had been doing uh, business stories. So I ah, also had... thought it was related uh, to business news. Correct. Okay, yeah. Leslie, where were you? Were you in a car also? No, I was actually in front... Uh, just had dinner in front of the television watching CNN and uh, only to see this, this amazing footage, you know. And um, I was at that point working for the Wall Street Journal. I was the uh, regional correspondent here based in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, the Wall Street editorial office was actually in in the, the Twin Towers. Mm. And a whole lot of colleagues were there. And it was, you know, it was quite um, quite uh, um, horrifying, actually, to to watch this. And um, 
immediately jumped onto the story, you know, because um, you know, we figured that, you know, uh, that markets were going to crash and a whole lot of stuff. So it was working nonstop immediately after that, as soon as the, the, the incident happened. And I was trying to get in touch with uh, colleagues of mine in New York, you know, to see whether they were safe, actually. But it was just impossible to get through the lines at the point. So it was quite, uh, quite, quite tense, quite... Uh, were, were you like everybody else when you first, when I, I when it first came on the news, did you think it was an accident or do you have a sense that there was something more going on? Interesting that you asked that, Jeremy. I, you know, I actually thought uh, CNN was playing something from a movie at, at first you know, until they, they kept saying it was breaking news. And then uh, uh, for, a, for a plane to crash into that building, first it seemed it seemed odd but after the second the second uh, yeah once uh, the second one the second plane hit the second tower that, you know this was a, clearly it was a tech right so you oh. know clearly then you know it was it was um it was yeah at that point it became clear like, but before yeah, it that it was you were uncertain as exactly. well i think like most of the, the yeah. most of the well most people were not sure what what that was Melvin, how about you? What, what was your memory like of the day? Uh, hazy. Uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, uh, I was about to have dinner. Leslie had made me dinner. <laughs> and uh, I, like Leslie, you know, I was just about to have dinner when I saw it on CNN. Uh, like I think most people thought it was an accident. And uh, it was that scene where uh, a, a journalist was on the rooftop of a building reporting live from somewhere near the scene uh, hmm. when, you know, the second plane crashed and then, you know, there was this sense of disbelief. Uh, what else can it be, right, at that point? And I got a call from, uh, you know, the then night editor of the, at the new paper, Mahfoud Simon, who unfortunately has since passed on, hmm. uh, saying, hey, uh, come back to the office, activate your team. Uh, this is a big story. We were an afternoon paper then. So the right. advantage we had, because it happened very, I think it was just around, Nine, just before prime time, yeah, just yeah. prime time US, which would have put ST at a disadvantage and TNP at an advantage because we would have the whole night, you know, to sieve through all the pictures, videos, etc., to put out a package the next day. Uh, right. But that started what ended up becoming... <laughs> uh, more than a 10-year experience. Yeah. Do you remember, I mean, because uh, most people have, have some memory of very uh, of some memorable TNP covers. Do you remember what you know, was your page one headline of the day? Oh, good question. I, I don't remember, but I remember the picture we used was of that poor fella who, you know, you know, decided that jumping off the building was his only option. And mm. it was very late in the morning when these pictures, you know, started streaming in. And it was yeah. shocking because it was caught live on TV, people falling and the cameras were zooming in and asking the question, what is that? What is that? You know, then came the shock. Yeah. I remember the picture. Yeah. Yeah. I think that one, that one a lot of people have seen. I think it's seen yeah. in my memory as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, guys. So now I'm going to zoom in a little bit on the on the impact that we have we might have felt in the region from those attacks. It's been twenty years. Uh, probably start with YUD. Uh, YUD. 
you had a piece in uh, the Straits Times package on 9-11 over the weekend. And you, uh, I mean, you chose to focus on uh, Abu Tolut. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece? Why you decided to talk about Abu Tolut and what's his significance to, you know, the f- impact of 9-11? Abu Tolut uh, is always a very interesting figure. He was a quite senior Jemaah Islamiyah member. Uh, the Southeast Asia Terror Network affiliated with Al-Qaeda. And he 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 fought in Afghanistan along with Taliban 1985 oh. to 1992. And then uh, he was trained uh, combat tactics by uh, then deserted military officer who is now just appointed has been appointed as deputy foreign minister in the Taliban government, right. uh, Muhammad Abbas Stanikzai. And, and he also led a military, paramilitary camp in Mindanao. Uh, and he's, he's quite in the loop, uh, uh, for sure. And also he's very active until now, uh, but he's strategic enough to focus on the politics, uh, you know, trying to talk people into uh, believing that an Islamic state is uh, uh, proper for Indonesia. So Abu Tolu is still active today? Uh, still active, uh, but uh, not in a violent uh, approach. Uh, he's, he believes that an Islamic state can be achieved through uh, democracy, through politics, which is actually uh, self-contradictory, uh, you know, for a militant to believe in democracy. That's what mm. makes him interesting as well. Do you, do you get a sense? So you, you spoke to Abu Talut, right? Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, did you get a sense of how 9-11 might have had an impact on him? Was his activity or who he joined, uh, anything like that? Or any of that changed by 9-11? Okay, like most terrorists, uh, especially smart ones like Abu Talut, he they always tend to be uh, innocent, uh, tend to not know anything. He claimed that when uh, the news broke, he was in the middle of a jungle in Poso, uh, in a, a sectarian conflict, a war between uh, Christians and Muslims there. He was in charge of uh, running the, you know, uh, a group of uh, militants, Muslim militants there to fight against Christians. He claimed mm. he did not know anything about it. Uh, and he kept saying that uh, uh, Indonesians uh, fell a victim because after the 9-11, you know, the Arabic-sounding names of Indonesians having problem uh, traveling to U.S., ah. getting visa. That's all he kept saying. He focused on the on that aspect. Really? On just getting all, to the U.S.? Yeah, he, so, he was... He, he linked to uh, Al Qaeda or JI in any way. Uh, uh, yes, he he was the uh, one of the uh, leader, uh, territorial leader, uh, uh, in charge of uh, Malaysia, Sabah, Philippines, Mindanao, uh, and then Sulawesi, Indonesia, Sulawesi. Hmm. But he was was he ever detained by authorities? Uh, yes, uh, he was con- convicted of. Uh, having uh, or possessing explosive and thousands of life bullets after uh, his stint in Poso. He was uh, uh, sentenced to seven years. And then uh, he got uh, 
uh, remission, uh, you know, sentence cut because of good behavior in prison, uh, surprisingly. Mm. And then he again uh, got convicted uh, in 2012 or 13 uh, for his involvement in uh, the setting up of paramilitary training camp in Aceh. Right. He was a weapons expert and trainer. Okay, yeah. so if I hear you correctly, after all these years, 20 years, he reflects back on 9-11. The only thing he has to say mm-hmm. is, I make getting a visa to the US difficult. Correct, correct. He's trying to make it like, uh, uh, you know, uh, they are the victims. Uh, actually, uh, uh, in a way, you know, Indonesia has the world's largest Muslim population. Yeah. A lot of us have Arabic sounding name. And US is actually the uh, nation, the country that uh, most Indonesia uh, like to go f- to advance the education. And also... Uh, uh, one of the main uh, tourist destination destination from Indonesia. Mm. So it is, uh, you know, uh, true that from time to time we talk about it. People getting difficult, uh, uh, having problem getting a visa because of their names. It's not official. Never said mm. by the embassy. Never discuss uh, properly. But some people here uh, felt so. Right. You know. Apart from that. So this discrimination um, I, I, seems like something that Indonesians have felt. Is there anything else post 9-11 which you say, you know, as you are covering Indonesia and you look back, since mm. 9-11, this, mm. this other thing has changed. Not just this discrimination with the US, but anything else. A good uh, progress would be, you know, uh, 9-11 triggered the passing of... Uh, Uh, Indonesia's anti-terror law, which uh, help uh, uh, prosecute uh, militants, which help uh, the government or the law enforcement officials uh, act uh, promptly. Uh, but there is still a weakness until today that Indonesia uh, is still using the law enforcement approach rather than using the war on terror approach. So everything, militants, if they have uh, any uh, problem, they are tried in court. Mm. So there is there is a weakness because uh, you have to have uh, ample evidence. Sometimes there is delay uh, in acting on them, which cause uh, uh, attacks that could have been prevented. So you, you, you talk about this law enforcement approach. Was that different pre-9-11? Uh, there is uh, before 9-11 uh, we were not uh, you know what I mean is what I'm trying to say uh, it all, all it has always been that way Indonesia's approach is uh, law enforcement on terrorism uh, but after 9-11 uh, it's uh, it served as a wake-up call you know Indonesia uh, after then uh, set up a special anti-terror unit Uh, it's called uh, Detachment 88 uh, Police Special Force. And, you know, they started to train uh, court judges, court justice, how uh, dangerous terrorism is mm. and how they need to, you know, uh, slap uh, uh, stern or, or severe uh, punishment or sentences on terrorism. You know, but Uh, it was a struggle. It, it, it was not uh, 
easy. Do you feel like 9-11, you know, injected some energy into the the terror movements or the terror cells in Indonesia? Because when, when a lot of people think about terrorism in Indonesia, they think about Bali bombing, uh, the Marriott bombing, all these things that happen after 9-11. Do you see any of those as linked? Like, the, is the Bali bombing linked some way, inspired some way by 9-11? Uh, yeah, correct. Uh, because, you know, uh, we see US as a superpower that we could never imagine could be uh, attacked the way 9-11 uh, occurred. Uh, I see that uh, this fueled uh, energy or spirits among the militants in Indonesia. Mm. And Bali bombing is definitely uh, linked to 9-11 because it was also uh, funded mainly by uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, we, uh, the authorities figured about uh, $35,000 US dollars that Al-Qaeda helped to fund uh, the plot or the attack uh, 2002 Bali bombing uh, the year with what that was a, only a year after 9-11 and then the month is only a month after October and also the date is only a day after October 12th. Yeah, so you feel that the date was, I mean, was significant. It felt like it was, it was uh, linked, tied in some way. They chose it to with some significance to 9-11, right? Yeah, and also there was evidence uh, Al-Qaeda uh, helped to fund uh, the bombing, Bali bombing. So the same, the same sponsor. If we fast forward to today, it's been 20 years, uh, JI is not what it used to be, right? Yeah, uh, under the recent leadership, Para Wijayanto, the name of the militant who was uh, uh, arrested uh, uh, two years ago, I think, uh, they chose a different strategy. You know, bombing, violent movement in Indonesia is not a good or effective way to win the hearts of Indonesian mm. because uh, they, they see that uh, Indonesia is not a battleground mm. uh, because uh, there have not been any conflicts or any such incidents that trigger them to uh, launch attacks or any retaliation, yeah. Uh, Jeremy, sorry, can I weigh in on that? Yes, sure. Okay, the problem I often have when we talk about the 9-11 attacks is as, as if everything that predates 9-11 is inconsequential, you know, or yeah, which cannot less be. significant. Yep. You know, it, it, the, the terrorism in the region did not start at the point of the attacks in New York. Uh, and uh, why you did please correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it mm-hmm. not Abu Bakar Bashir and Abdullah Sunka who started the concept of Daulah Islamiyah mm-hmm. post-Indonesian independence and they had been waging war with the nationalists, with the Achenis mm-hmm. and was it not mm-hmm. Suharto when he came into power which basically kicked out Abdullah Sunka mm-hmm. and Abu Bakar Bashir and Abu Bakar Bashir then went into Malaysia in the early 80s, and that was when the school in basically Ulutiram was set up. So the seeds of JI were planted with the concept of the Islamic Caliphate in the region, which was planted from the 40s and the 50s. 
and really, you know, you saw it germinate in the 70s and the 80s in Indonesia and in Malaysia. You know, I, I raised this point because, you know, there was an, uh, the Indonesian officials actually raised a critical point uh, just before the 9-11 attacks. Uh, this was after a number of bombings in Medan, in Jakarta, in Batam. Yeah. And this was in 2000, around December. This was, mm. you know, post-Warto, there was concern about balkanization of Indonesia. Mm. Now, when I was in, in Jakarta during the riots in 98, already people were talking about the rise of the Islamists, mm. you know. And mm -hmm. it was not just in Indonesia. In, across in Malaysia, you had the rise of Nick Aziz's son, Kumpulan Mujahideen Malaysia, and they were informed, involved in robberies, etc. Now, interestingly, mm -hmm. uh, then Senior Minister Lee Kuan Yew, founding Prime Minister, raised the question, can someone like Osama bin Laden unite the seemingly disparate groups across the region, whether it's the Moro Islamic Liberation Front in the Philippines, whether it is the Kumpulan Mujahideen Malaysia, whether it is, you know, the elements of Daulah Islamiyah, it wasn't then known as Jamaah Islamiyah, you know, could they be united, you know, under the umbrella of Al-Qaeda? And the new paper actually ran the story on the 9th of September, two days before the attack. And by and large, the experts all saw no connection and dismissed the possibility arguing that each conflict was unique in its own merits and, you know, because of the cultural and language differences, no chance. Coincidentally, 9th of September was the day when Ahmad Masood was also assassinated in, you know, the corner of Afghanistan closest to Tajikistan. You know, the man known as the Lion of the Panjshir Valley. Mm. You know, the anti-Taliban. So all these events predate 9-11 and the mistake I feel that we often make in our analysis is what happened after 9-11 when the story really should be what happened prior to 9-11 that saw these groups go from covert to overt post 9-11. Could I interject here? Yes, sure, Leslie. You know, um, I, I mean, this, what Melvin said is absolutely correct. And, you know, I was... Shortly after the 9-11 uh, thing happened, it was a big story for the Wall Street Journal. And while everyone focused on Afghanistan, uh, you know, that was the center. At that point in time, uh, Nick Aziz's son, who Melvin pointed out, had just been arrested. I was covering uh, this group called KMM, mm. uh, Kumpulan Mujahideen Malaysia. And at that point, it seemed as if uh, this was a government kind of assault against uh, Party Islam Malaysia. Now, Party Islam Malaysia, PAS, were, uh, which was based in, you know, headquartered in Kelantan, Tangano, the East Coast. And it seemed as if it was uh, more political than anything else. But shortly after that, um, I got, I delved into the story uh, uh, using, I mean, the, the, uh, counter-terrorism uh, context that I made in Malaysia, special branch. Right. And the first tip to to really get uh, me going on to this thing was when Singapore arrested people in in uh, in Singapore first who were linked to the KMM group. You know, at that point, what happened, what, what triggered that in Malaysia was that that led to 
people like Azahari Hussein, uh, Nordin Momatok, who were key people in who became key people in organizing the Bali attacks and the attacks at the Australian embassy and all the stuff in Jakarta, uh, they were they fled to Indonesia, and that actually you know interestingly now I can point out that that the the Malaysians the Malaysian special branch at that point was pretty incensed with the Singaporeans for for detaining the Singaporeans without alerting the Malaysians, which led people to to you know cause the Malaysian guys who were at that point in Johor. To, to flee to Indonesia, right. and that and that got me covering the story more closely. Uh, people like Maslamat became uh, came onto the radar, and in February, actually, I did this uh, very extensive story where we put uh, we put how uh, this picture, this uh, this bearded cleric named Ridwan Isam, Isamuddin, who was known as Hambali, as kind of the central man. In, in this whole thing. And that that basically led to a huge number of stories for the journal before I joined the Straits Times again, where we covered this thing extensively. And I was part of this uh, global uh, global uh, journal uh, team of 20 of us, including, you know, the late Daniel Pearl, actually. And this who, is the Hambali that up. ultimately became the Bali Bama. Exactly. Who is now in, you know, on trial in Guantanamo and everything else. So, um, you know, he was, he was, uh, they, they had foiled a nine, nine, uh, he was involved in the 1994 plot attacks on New York and Washington that foiled and called Bojinka at that point. So, you know, these things spawned a lot of stories. And what Melvin points out is true because that made, what happened was we found that Malaysia became quite a central transit point for whole lot of these terrorists, you know, people like, like who were arrested, like Yazid Sufar, you know, who's been arrested. Leslie, the actual hijackers apparently had a planning meeting in Malaysia, right? Exactly. Yazid Sufar and, you know, people like Hambali and all these guys were in Malaysia at that point. So, you know, they had a meeting just outside Kuala Lumpur. Yazid Sufar, I wrote a, a large profile on this guy. He was supposed to be the, the guy who was, uh, was going to be, uh, he was, let me see, he was a biochemist. He was uh, going to be, he was actually the guy that uh, that uh, Osama decided would become the head of the anthrax uh, campaign, you know, against the US. Yeah. So a lot of things happened in Malaysia at that point, you know, and, um, and the Malaysian sent a special branch, I think, were very, very instrumental in 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 putting together this picture of this this really global terror outfit right where southeast asia was actually a a key component i remember covering stories like you know about how islamic schools were flourishing in in malaysia and they were becoming kind of you know these hotbeds you know yeah. not just like in pakistan and afghanistan but you know hotbeds for this and uh and it brought into focus too the the Islamization uh, process that had been going on in Malaysia since the eighties, and this was like that dark side of that of that uh, of that policy, you know. So uh, it was interesting, but I think what is also interesting here is that you know the special branch is largely probably ninety percent Malay Muslim, mm. and. Uh, how they pursued all these guys, you know, without fear or favor, is is something that is little discussed, but 
you know, I think um, the USCIA and a whole lot of the regional uh, regional um, uh, intelligence agencies credit them for some exemplary work, actually, of piecing this together and putting, you know, creating a real picture of how serious this threat is it, and that the 9-11 was not just a one-off incident, you know, like Melvin said, it's all interconnected. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's it really 20 years on, you know, it's amazing to see this thing and you still wonder whether, you know, these guys will surface again. And I, I believe that, you know, it can very easily happen given uh, the, uh, the, you know, kind of uh, unstable political situation uh, in the region, uh, worsening economic conditions, mm. all of this become, you know, kind of fertile ground for these kind of groups. Right. Okay. Um, so I, I get the point, uh, Rowan and Melvin brought up that, uh, you know, 9-11 was not the start of anything. It was kind of just connected in parts, in general part of the spectrum. But uh, Melvin, um, I guess I, what I want to get from you is that uh, 9-11 was not the start, but it did focus at least the public mind on terrorism and Southeast Asia as a, you know, as a, as a key part of that. A lot of people think, a lot of people think about terrorism in terms of the Middle East, but I thought 9-11 focused the mind a little bit, both on terrorism and on Southeast Asia. And I, I, I think, you know, a, a part of the problem is, you know, the, the, the nature of the consumption of news is so Western-centric that if you see a terror attack on the streets of London or France, you are more likely to react to it than a terror attack in Ambon or in Solo. Mm. And UD will tell you that post-98, after Suharto was ousted, you know, Abu Bakr Bashir returned and there was this upsurge in number of religious conflicts Yes. From Pontian, Pontiana in Kalimantan to, to Ambon, you know. It, so, it, no, but it, I guess my, my question is, there was, we cannot deny there was a, I mean, it is Western-centric, but there was a focus yeah. of, the, of the, at least the public attention. C certainly, it was, it was a blockbuster attack. Yeah, and was there, I guess my, my question to you, this sudden focus of public attention, did it have any long-lasting effects. Did something change in the region because of this? Certainly. I think the, it became even more tangible, like Leslie pointed out, and UD also uh, talked about you know, how the threat was a lot closer to home. I mean, if the attack in New York was just in New York, uh, that's not my concern. And if you recall, there was an attack in New York at the same building uh, about seven, earlier. eight years yeah. prior. And if you recall, Osama was not an unknown. After the attacks uh, at the, the embassy in Tanzania and Kenya, you know, Clinton fired cruise missiles into Afghanistan targeting Osama. So all those things had happened. And though, you know, I say, you know, Western-centric, you know, consumption of news, the reality was something that happened over there. Mm. But when the arrests, related arrests, were made in Singapore, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, suddenly everybody sat up and said, wow, they're all connected and it's a lot closer to home than we thought. The, the downside to that is when you do it so well and you pick them up and you pick them up quietly 
and there are no attacks on your home ground, you start to question whether the threat was really all there. Mm. You know, uh, I'll give, I'll illustrate with one example. Um, Fato Roman Algozi was arrested in the Philippines, and he's an Indonesian who traveled everywhere with a fake passport, and he was a JI bomb maker. He was captured in the Philippines with one ton of TNT. Wow. Or he led the authorities to one ton of TNT. Interestingly, there was an AP report that said standing with the Philippine military were two Singaporeans. You know? Mm. Nobody, Nobody confirmed or denied that bit. <laughs> yes. And this was after the detonating cords and all were purchased. The... Uh, Targets were identified in Singapore. The seven targets were identified in Singapore. The trucks were sourced. So it was only a matter of a driver's, you know. And this TNT was supposed to leave the Philippines for Singapore or Malaysia the next day. Wow. And subsequently, the Malaysian authorities uncovered uh, in Johor, the state of Johor, the ammonia nitrate that was supposed to be mixed with the TNT to amplify its impacts. And it was that close. Mm. So we don't really get a sense of how close uh, Maslamat was about to board the plane. He purchased the tickets, business class. If I recall correctly, it was an Aeroflot flight. Mm. And two days before he boarded the plane, an article appeared in the Thai papers saying, look out for this fella. And he didn't board the plane. Mm. You know, that's how close it was, you know. But because yeah. there was no blockbuster event closer to home, then it became, is this real? You know, so when you ask the impact, I think, you know, the impact was only immediate when, you know, there was heightened security, more cameras around, more boots on the ground at the MRT stations and all in the Singapore context. Mm. But I think a lot of people you know, develop a sense of complacency. Yeah. I guess, I guess the success, the people pay very little attention to the unsuccessful attacks. Yeah. I mean, UD, correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, the sense that, you know, there was this united force that would try to shake up the national government or Westerners in Indonesia wasn't significant until the Bali bombing. You know, the belief was that, you know, it was, ethnic conflicts, you know, the, the Bataks, so the Florex, the Flores, you know, uh, the Christians and the Muslim in Ambon, but really between the, you know, one ethnic clan versus the another, the Melanesians versus the Javanese, you know, but never was it seen as this huge threat that could impact, you know, tourists, the Westerners in the mm. country, etc. until the Bali bomb, then it became a reality or it became significant enough for a larger audience. Good point, Melvin. Thank you very much. Just this mm. one uh, short story we uh, knew from uh, that time about uh, how JI uh, got their one-ton explosive to uh, do Bali bombing. Actually, they evacuated uh, these uh, bombs from sea bottom, from leftover from the World War II from sea bottom, and then they what they did was they uh, put them in the barrels stuffed with cold ice overnight. And then the next day, when the explosive is in a frozen form, they can safely cut open the bomb shell, which later they dry and use it for 
Bali attack. That, 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 this oh, is something wait, so that so the the one ton explosive yeah. was from yeah, World War II. from sea bottom. This is wow. some, something that we could not report then because of the sensitivity. But now it's no longer sensitive because government has done its job to sweep the leftover bombs sea bottom. So 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 there should not be any replication uh, or or any any, any other groups wow. trying to do the same. But this this is something that kind of yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, this is the first time that Indonesia had uh, an attack with one ton explosive, one single attack, one ton explosive TNT. Yeah. I do want to get to Maslamat before we finish. You know, we mentioned him shortly. The, he had a plan to crash his plane in the Changi. And, uh, but I tell you what made news in Singapore, what most people remember is that he escaped from a detention facility in Whitley and then was recaptured in Malaysia. So, uh, Leslie, you were the one that broke the story of his recapture. Uh, yeah, I think it made page one news. It was all yeah, over the was... place. It's been 10 years since. Are you prepared now to share some of the behind the scenes of how you broke yeah, sure, that story? Actually, um, I was, I was um, at that point still, you know, uh, covering a lot of the the regional terrorism stories, which I had been doing for the journal. And when I joined the Straits Times, I started, I uh, was still on that beat. And I recall uh, calling a very good uh, Indonesian CT contact of mine, counter-terrorist contact of mine. And I was preparing a trip to Indonesia. So setting up, basically lining up interviews and that kind of stuff. Mm. And one of these guys, very senior guy in uh, Detachment 88, the one that, that special unit that uh, uh, UD mentioned earlier, told yes. me that uh, why, why was I planning to come to, 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 to Gada when the real story was in Malaysia. And, this, and I remember the date. This was May 6th, uh, May 6th, 2008, I believe. And, um, and so I said, why? He said, I just got a... a Got a it, it advertently came out in one of his conversations with the Malaysian special branch senior special branch guy that uh, they were interrogating Maslama. I said, but I thought he was still on the run. He said, no, he's been captured, and that was how oh. I got the lead and called a very good contact of mine, very senior guy in the special branch, and and he said, who told you this? And I said, look, I know <laughs> it's true. That's the that's the best answer, right? When yeah. you tell somebody something, say, who told you? <laughs> who told you this? So I knew that it was not true. That immediately it was true already. And then, so, and he said, yes. And the only detail I had was that he was arrested, but from my Indonesian contact, was that he was arrested on April 1st. He was caught on April 1st in Johor. And I thought, hey, is someone uh, setting me up on some April Fool's joke or something like that, mm. you know? So, but <laughs> anyway, anyway, when, um, when the... When the, my Malaysian source confirmed it and said yes, he's been interrogated, but we told Singapore not to not to release this information, and before we handed him over, so I knew then we had a great story. I remember uh, uh, Zuraida was the uh, was the foreign editor at that point, Zuraida Ibrahim mm. and Patrick. So I got both of them on the phone and it was completely top secret at that point. No one else knew about this thing. And I told Zoo that, look, I got this story, confirmed it with two people. And uh, I'm trying to get uh, something from the home ministry in Malaysia. Uh, but yeah. I said, we could do this uh, on the Singapore side. 
uh, because we, uh, I was certain that the Singapore government, apart from the uh, Prime Minister Lee and the Home Minister Wong Kan Singh, I think at that point, were the only ones privy to this information. So I, hmm. I sort of argued to Patrick and Zhu that, you know, we could go to the government directly and tell them that we know about this. And if one of our reporters was already onto this story, it was just a matter of time before this thing leaked. And it was a story that the Straits Times need needed to to own and control because you know there was a lot at that point there was a lot of rumors out there in social media that you know that Maslamat was actually interrogated killed during interrogation in Singapore mm. and the government was trying to cover it up and all this kind of stuff so I said look this will and I remember going to Singapore several times you know by road and each time at the causeway on the Singapore side, you'll be stopped because they were looking for someone who looked like, you know, Maslamat actually at that point. But I said, like, you know, we could... You don't look like Maslamat. <laughs> so I said, we could we could end this once and for all. And Patrick and Zhu, actually Patrick went to see the Prime Minister. And I remember then it became a story by itself. The, the, the Prime Minister had to call for a cabinet meeting to actually inform the cabinet that he'd been captured. And we got the, the, the confirmation we needed and we pushed the story out the next day, you know. Um, it was a good so, story. Yeah, yeah, so it was it was you know exciting at that point, and you know until the story appeared, it was really um, you know it's, it's always like when you get a scoop, you know you don't know whether you know you're very certain of the story when you when you're writing it, but just before it comes out, you know you you know you get all these you know questions mm -hmm. right you know and and uh, as soon as it hit, when he got arrested it was world news, and the Malaysian government confirmed you know that yes. He's been arrested and Singapore government confirmed too. So, you know, we had that great story actually. You know? yeah. still, I, still, yeah, very... I still remember it very vividly. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's wonderful covering that, you know. Does anybody know what where Maslamat is today? I think he's back in Singapore, right? Singapore. Because the still, still in Malaysia. Yeah. I'm sure he's detained, probably yeah. in a, locked up in some island perhaps. <laughs> so, he doesn't <laughs> escape. He, he would be still under detention. A number of them from the original group that were that were rounded up in December yeah. remain under detention uh, as is Muhammad Aslam you know the fellow yes. who was caught fighting in Tora Bora you mm. know was you know he mm. and he actually was the starting point of the revelation that this you know radical you know self-made cleric you know was uh, Ibrahim Aydin was yes. actu actually yeah, yeah. far more, you know, radical than previously thought, you know, because it all started with that Aslam capture. Yeah, let's actually, let's, you know, let's finish off this post podcast talking about Muhammad Aslam. Uh, Melvin, you chased this guy to <laughs> Afghanistan. Well, no, <laughs> not, not entirely. <laughs> so basically what happened was, uh, I went to, if you can ever say that, I went to Afghanistan a little too early. So, oh. <laughs> the, the night of the, or rather the morning after the September 11 attacks, Ivan... Ivan was the editor of TNP yes, at the time, uh, is it? Ivan Fernandez was the editor of the new paper at the time. Ivan asked, hey, why don't you go to New York? And I said, no, I'd rather go to Afghanistan because it was clear they were going to attack Afghanistan. Interestingly, it was to teach the Taliban's a lesson for refusing to give up Osama. It was never about regime change, okay? Mm. I think people forget that in May of that year, Bush actually praised the Taliban government for getting rid of heroin. 
you know, heroin, the poppy fields of, you know, Afghanistan became the main supply of heroin and opium in, in Europe, you know. So when we went over there, you know, we ended up being too early. The bombs started falling, I think, from October 7 officially when Operation Enduring Freedom started. And uh, our passage to Kabul was blocked on every front. You could only go through Tajikistan. Mm. And, uh, you oh. know, because we were a small outfit, we simply ran out of money. And after two or three weeks over there, we returned and we decided we'll have a second mission. But what we didn't know at that point was around the time when we returned and Operation Enduring Freedom started, this fella who was a loud mouth, you know, self-styled radical who ran a shop at the Golden Landmark in Singapore, the Golden Landmark Mall. He Mm. uh, had a failed renovation business. He actually traveled to Afghanistan. He said he would, and he actually did it. And he was caught by the Northern Alliance fighting in in Tora Bora. And a contact called me and said, hey, there's this fella in Kabul in the lockup claiming to be a Singaporean. And uh, he had a unique name, Aslam Ya Ali Khan, Muhammad Aslam Ya Ali Khan. And this was the days of mm. the phone book, right? So I went through the phone yes. book and there was only one fellow with the same name. You know, he lived in Yishun. And yep. of course, I went there to Yishun and I knew I had walked into an operation, a security operation, uh, because of the number of plain clothes fellas around. Uh, I was a police <laughs> Around his, his Around block, his block. I was a police officer for six yeah. years. So, you know, identifying such individuals not particularly challenging. Um, we subsequently, you know, arranged for Sito and Ishak, who was with me, Ishak, the executive photojournalist, who was with me in Afghanistan. Uh, we negotiated with... Yeah, and Sito is another TNT Sito was journalist. a young female journalist, very, very brave. Uh, she, we arranged through the warlords uh, for them to have safe passage all the way to Kabul in the hope that we could get him there. And uh, they went mm. there, but they were refused permission to go anywhere near the lockup. And the lockup had a number of apparently Al-Qaeda of, uh, associates as well. And eventually, when they made their way back to Jalalabad, a fellow came up to them and said, Hey, I hear you guys are Singaporeans looking for the Singaporean and gave them the photocopy of Muhammad Aslam's passport. So it mm. was, you know, a journey that ended. But I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one interesting piece of news. I mean, uh, background information, so to speak. So after I walked into the security operation, I'm not saying because of it, but soon after, there was a briefing for the editors. And I get a call from Ivan. What are you working on? <laughs> so apparently I I was told to stay away, you know, and, mm. and it was not, you know, not like Leslie with his contacts, not like Yudi with his experience and, he, you know, the, the, the fact that he's brave. I was merely stupid and had stumbled into a security <laughs> operation. That's how good you know, stories happen. <laughs> I, will never, I will never claim that I was so brilliant in getting this. I tell you honestly, I just stumbled into it, you know. And I even had to call me and say, whatever you are doing, stop it. Okay. And I had yeah. to stop it and 
December, they rounded up the fellas. And in January, we ran the story. And I think the headline was the man who talked too much. A friend of mine <laughs> who, who ran a shop next to Aslam, who sold religious books and all, you know, be, I don't know whether it was because he talked to me, but soon after he talked to me, he was called up. Mm. So well, you're part of the story. Yeah. For, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, Leslie and uh, Yudi, we all do respect you fellas are the ones with the experience and context. I was just a young fellow who's stumbled into things. Right place know? at the right time. I, I <laughs> for younger listeners uh, tuning in, um, there used to be a time where there was this thing called a phone book and you can look up people's <laughs> names in it. It was a very good source of information. <laughs> and, and, and it's most unfortunate that it happened in Yishun and everyone say, why Yishun again? <laughs> no, that was before Yishun was yeah. a thing. <laughs> and Yudi, you had some inside and where, where Maslamat or at least some of his family uh, uh, members yes, are today? Yes, we did a story back in 2013. We uh, tried to track uh, where Maslamat's son was and we we found uh, uh, some information. Uh, his name is Hanif. Uh, he was 24. He was married with a local uh, uh, woman in Central Java and apparently he had an infant boy. So, uh, what, what is he doing Hanif, today? Uh, at the time when we did the story, Hanif was just deported to Singapore uh, and left his wife and son behind in Central Java. Uh, Hanif okay. was... So Hanif is in detention uh, in also? In detention in Singapore. Hanif was uh, uh, attending a JI school in Central Java uh, for the past 10 years uh, until he was deported to Singapore. Thank you, Yudit. Thanks, Leslie, and thank you, Melvin. I am going to leave it at that. This was a great chat. Thank you very much thank for you. your time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You can find Melvin's earlier podcast that he did with Sito Nguyen on the Straits Times podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The same channel where you can find this episode too as we commemorate the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks in the United States. That was an SPH podcast by the Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times, The Business Times and Money FM 89.3.